Welcome back to After School Science Club. I'm Liv. And I'm Mick. And we hope you've been enjoying the series so far, especially our guest visit from Yav last episode. Uh, today, it's just us again. So we'll be talking about science news, going down weird rabbit holes, and just generally having a lot of fun. I know that the first thing we wanted to talk about today was a new spider named after Tom Hardy. So I'm going to let Liv take that one because I know that you were super excited about that. Yeah, so scientists have discovered a new type of orb-weaving spider in Australia, and they've named it after um, Tom Hardy and the character he plays in the Marvel films, Venom. They've named it, and I really hope I'm not butchering this, Venomius Tom Hardy. Um, the spider was named after him because the black spots on the spider's abdomen made the researchers um, who discovered it think of Venom's head. So orb-weaving spiders are known for their distinctive round-shaped webs that they create. But this new spider doesn't actually fit into any that are currently known to scientists. So some of its characteristics, like its physical appearance, looks similar to a group of spiders called leaf-curling orb-weavers. But when they looked at its genitalia, it was actually really different from the species from that group. Um, and although it looked like other leaf-curling orb-weavers, this new species doesn't uh, seem to use rolled up leaves in its web building behaviors like they do. Now shape, color and patterns of spiders and the structure of their webs can be used to identify different species, um, but it's actually looking at the genitalia that is the best way to identify them. So that's why they've now created um, a brand new genus and a brand new species just for it. That's pretty cool but it's not the easiest thing for people to do when they're just trying to identify a spider on the fly oh my god i can't believe i just said a spider on the fly on the fly <laughs> i promise not to edit that out okay so is this new spider actually as poisonous as its name would suggest the species is venomous but it's not thought to be harmful to humans because um, the scientists say that its pincers are unlikely to be able to pierce human skin. Other orb weavers are also considered harmless to humans. For listeners, there is a difference between poisonous and venomous. So poison is when a toxin gets into the body by inhaling, swallowing, uh, or absorbing through the skin, whereas if something's venomous, it's when the toxin is injected into you. So poisonous spiders release their toxins when they're inhaled, ingested, absorbed, etc. So basically, they're only harmful if you eat them, whereas venomous spiders are harmful because they inject their toxin through bites. If it bites you and you die, then it's venomous. If you bite it and you die, then it's poisonous. Exactly. And I like that. Um, I like that distinction. So the most venomous spider in Australia is actually the Sydney funnel web. It's associated with 13 deaths currently, and it can kill in as little as 15 minutes. I thought it was the black widow, Australian black widow spider or the red back spider, but it's actually not. Um, it's the Sydney funnel web, but the red back spider is found throughout Australia. And they, I don't know if people have ever heard before, but they always say, if you go to Australia, you should check under your toilet seats. And that's apparently because of the the black widow spider, um, because they like to hide in sheltered places like mailbox or under the toilet seat. There are reported cases of bites each year, but not 
too many are considered deadly. They're more dangerous to young children or elderly people, uh, but sometimes you do have to go to hospital for treatment. A redback antivenom was actually developed in the 1950s. Since then, only one death has actually been recorded from a redback bite. My favourite Australian spider is the huntsman because they're so big and people tend to get such a visceral reaction to them because you see a big, ugly spider and you get terrified. But huntsmen are actually kind of friendly. Didn't you have a huntsman spider story to share, Liv? So when I did my gap year in Australia after my undergraduate degree, I spent some time in a town called Orange, uh, which is about four hours in a west of Sydney. And in Sydney, because it's a city, you can get huntsmen, but I didn't encounter any. And then when I moved to Orange, I had a one too many huntsman spiders. The first one was when my friend came to visit and we found one in the kitchen and we literally spent hours just just not knowing how to deal with this with this thing. And then the other time was I had a huntsman spider in my room. I walked in and it was just on the window and the window was sort of above the head of my bed. And I just had to, I just had to deal with it. And I didn't, I didn't move it. I didn't go near it. It never seemed to move. Every time I woke up in the morning or came into my room, it was always in the same position. I did just sleep with the covers over my head just in case. They're not my personal favorite spider. Um, They're big and they are quite frightening to look at. And they can bite if they're provoked out of defense or if it's a female spider carrying eggs, but the bites aren't generally dangerous to humans. They do have venom in them and inject it when they bite, but it usually just causes pain at the bite site. Just to give everyone an idea of how big these spiders actually are, my Australian friend calls them clock spiders because if they hang out behind a wall clock, you can tell it's a huntsman because there are legs sticking out both sides. I just can't think of anything worse. Spiders are all very well and good, but there is another creature that I particularly love. Jellyfish are some of my favorite animals. And there's been some pretty cool news about jellyfish in the last few days as well. One interesting thing about jellyfish is that they actually have no real brain. They can respond to stimuli, but they sort of have a distributed network of nervous system instead of an actual central brain that you can see or target. Until now, people thought that jellyfish were not capable of what they call associative learning. So they thought that jellyfish basically just responded to stimuli. But a particular type of jellyfish, the Caribbean box jellyfish, which incidentally is quite dangerous to humans, has now shown that it can actually learn from past experiences and display new behavior in response to things that have happened to it. I thought that was pretty cool for a creature that has no brain at all. Yeah, that is interesting. So how did they find this out that it could actually learn through this this other method? So what they did was create an environment that to a jellyfish, which has very rudimentary vision, looked like its natural mangrove environment. And what they had it do was deliver a very weak electrical shock when the jellyfish approached a moving gray bar that looks like what a mangrove root would if you were a jellyfish. And that sort of simulated the feeling of the jellyfish colliding with a mangrove root. And after a little while, they started to see electrical signals from the jellyfish's visual centers that 
showed that it was trying to avoid colliding with what it thought were mangrove roots. So it learned that it could bump into the gray bars and that it didn't like bumping into the gray bars. And so it learned to start avoiding the gray bars so that it didn't bump into them anymore, which is a lot more complex than scientists used to think jellyfish were capable of because originally they were viewed as just sort of drifting animals who weren't really that in control of their own fate or who could indeed jet themselves about the ocean, but didn't really put much thought into where they were going or why. There are no jellyfish species that have brains, right? No, they have distributed uh, nervous system networks instead and lots of stomachs. Interesting. Where do the stomachs live? Their stomachs are in kind of a ring around their middle, which is fun if you have a pet or lab jellyfish and feed them something like brine shrimp that are red because you see them ingest the brine shrimp and then they go into kind of a flowery ring around their middle so you can see exactly where their digestive system is. Oh, cool. But there is a species of jellyfish. Now, I thought that just all jellyfish live forever, but there's actually only one species, right, that lives forever, um, which is the, ter- I'm going to butcher this again, ter- Terotopsis dawny. That's super cool. I did not know that there was only one species of immortal jellyfish. So in this matter, you are definitely the expert. I'll tell you another cool fact about jellyfish, and it's that jellyfish have influenced a large amount of the life science and medicine that we know about today. And the reason for that is that we find out a lot of what we know by playing with genes and proteins and seeing what changes. And the reason we can see what changes is thanks to a little protein that we got out of jellyfish. And it's the one that lets them glow in the dark. It's called green fluorescent protein, or at least the original one was, but Now there's a whole host of them and they come in all kinds of colors. The most popular ones at the moment, I think, are probably red proteins. So if you've ever looked into gene therapies or if you've ever been treated for cancer or if you've ever had a modern vaccine, you probably have a jellyfish to thank. That's interesting. There was a a piece of research recently, right, about inverse vaccines? Uh, That's right. Basically... The idea is that we mostly vaccinate against diseases that infect us by getting past our immune system. But some, in fact, many human diseases are caused by our immune system being too active. And those are the autoimmune diseases. And to treat an autoimmune disease, you actually need to make your immune system slightly less strong, which is why many of the medicines that treat autoimmune diseases actually give you a slightly weaker immune system, which people will remember from knowing who was more at risk from COVID-19. So recently, scientists have developed what they're currently calling an inverse vaccine that actually attaches sugar molecules to self-antigens, which are the molecules in our body in an autoimmune disease that are provoking the immune system to attack the body. By attaching these sugar molecules to what are called self-antigens, so the components of the human body that the immune system attacks in an autoimmune disease, they're able to create a sugar-antigen combination that they can get the body to focus on instead. 
and the sugar molecules steer this combination into the liver, which is a crucial organ in the body for establishing immune tolerance. And by sending it there, they are essentially teaching the immune system to learn to tolerate these self-antigens. So the immune system decides that actually these self-antigens are okay and stops attacking them. And that applies around the body. So you no longer develop the autoimmune disease because no matter where in the body you are, your immune system is no longer trying to attack that part of your body that it formerly thought was an enemy. Has this research been done in humans yet? No, this is very preliminary research. So, so far they've done it in vitro and they've done it in mice. And they know that it's a good first step in mice, but it's important now to establish it in people. If approved and if it does get to human trials, would is this the first would this be the first thing that we actually have to prevent autoimmune diseases? Yes and no is the answer. It's the first thing we have where we can actually provide a treatment to people whom we know might be at risk of an autoimmune disease. But there are other things. So for instance, uh, some autoimmune diseases have a genetic component and we can be aware of that genetic component ahead of time and avoid potential triggers. Also, and something of particular interest at the moment, is we're seeing an increasing body of evidence that many autoimmune diseases may follow on from a viral infection early in life. It's arguable that if we can prevent those viral infections, or at least mitigate their severity, we might be able to prevent the autoimmune diseases that arise from those infections. It's interesting you say that, actually, because there was a large-scale study that came out last year that people might remember. It was done in more than 10 million uh, young adults in the US military, and 955 of them were diagnosed with MS during their period of service in the military. And the research has found that the risk um, of being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis increased by 32-fold after infection with Epstein-Barr virus. So after they've been infected with the virus, their risk increased times 32 of someone who didn't have EBV previously. But this risk didn't increase after infection with other viruses. So they basically established this link between previous EBV infection and multiple later multiple sclerosis. Yeah, Epstein-Barr virus is actually quite a nasty one. Um, almost everyone gets infected with EBV at some point in their life, but it can persist in your body for an extremely long time. And it's linked with quite a number of autoimmune diseases. So for instance, if you have chronic, recurrent, or persistent infection of the epithelial cells, which are sort of the surface tissue layer, that's been linked to lupus and to Sjogren's syndrome, chronic, recurrent, or persistent infection of the B cells, so part of your immune system, is associated with uh, MS, like you said, but also with rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases. EBV can also move around between cells, so you can often get overlap syndromes that look like more than one autoimmune disease at the same time. It's a really tricky net to untangle, and it seems pretty clear that EBV is one of the viruses that plays a significant role. 
But that might be just about all we have time for this week. So we're going to have to save all the other really cool science news for episode after next, because next episode... We are actually talking to Coral Dando all about lie detector tests, which is exciting. Exciting and somewhat of a misnomer, but that's something that you'll learn all about next week. So for now, thank you for joining us this week on After School Science Club. Uh, we hope you're having fun. We certainly are. And we hope you'll look forward to next week and our next special guest. See you next week. Thank you for listening to After School Science Club, hosted by Liv Gaskell and Mick Schubert, with music by Sam Watts. I'm Liv, and you can find me on Instagram at sciencewithliv. And I'm Mick, and you can find me at mickschubert.com, as well as a variety of other places. You can also email us at scyclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-C-I club podcast at gmail.com. So get in touch if you have any burning questions or if you want to suggest a cool topic for us to discuss in a future episode. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode. Boom! We did it!